Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Tamil Major. In this episode we're continuing with The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're continuing Chapter 4. It has been maintained that seawater is laxative. It may be that the sulfates of calcium and magnesium it contains have this effect on land when other factors are normal, but after my experiences, I assert emphatically that this is not the case at sea, a fact which certain German experiments have confirmed. Jack was much more hesitant than I was to give seawater a trial, and preferred to await a catch of fish or a rainstorm before slaking his thirst. In spite of my advice and arguments, he refused to take a drop. It was a striking example of the danger caused by habits of thought too deeply rooted, but he was not to be moved even when he saw me drinking it. While still on land, he had agreed completely with my theory and fully intended to make the experiment, but once he was faced by reality, the taboo placed for so many generations on seawater conquered his previous intentions. So there we were, literally in the same boat, one of us conforming to the inhibitions of the classic castaway, and the other with his heretical ideas. Suddenly, Jack's voice broke into my thoughts. Alain, it is three o'clock and they will be expecting our first radio message. We might as well take advantage of the calm. I agreed, though we had few illusions about the result, most of them having been destroyed by Jean Ferré before our departure. We knew that our jerry-rigged set was a laboratory instrument, liable to damage, at the least shock, its wiring and circuits entirely at the mercy of the damp. We were convinced that the thing was not going to work, but there, it was three o'clock. For several minutes now all round the Mediterranean, radio amateurs would have been searching the ether, ignorant of the ludicrous nature of our experiment. It's three o'clock, Jack repeated. I thought of my wife alone in Monaco, off Radio Geneva, and of the jerry can of water we had had to leave behind to compensate for the weight of the set. I thought of all the telephone calls my wife would be receiving about four o'clock to say, We've been listening for them for over an hour. Perhaps, after all, Jean Ferrier was wrong. Perhaps it was true that the set had been constructed especially for our purposes. Perhaps we were going to be able to maintain contact with land. My hopes rose. Perhaps this combination of wires and valves served some purpose after all. Surely no one would deliberately take advantage of two men engaged in such an adventure as ours. Jack, let's get the aerial up, I said. The aerial... Have you ever tried to launch a kite without moving from your chair? The experts had either overlooked this problem or had assumed that we could do it. I hope that someday I can persuade one of them to try and launch a kite with its precious aerial as we had to from a platform six feet long. We must both have cut ridiculous figures lurching and stumbling with each wave. And then the kite plunged into the sea, soaked and useless. We were overcome by a sense of horror supposing our friends on land were still waiting after all. Put up the emergency aerial, I cried. This was a steel fishing rod on a halyard. When hoisted up the mast, it was about 15 feet high, appearing not much higher than the waves, and the wire which led down from it was attached to the transmitter. I tried the pilot light, tapped the ammeter and said to Jack, Turn the... thing. The generator between his knees started to make a grinding noise, and a mysterious current seemed to run through everything. The valves lit up. Rather like firing my last shot, I started tapping the Morse key. I must have repeated the message a hundred times. 
I turned all the knobs, tested all the wires, put my fingers on the contacts to see if there was any sign of the expected 250 volts. A single drop of water or some slight shock to the quartz crystal had been enough. Without my saying a word, Jack had stopped turning the generator. His gaze met mine. It's not good, I said. Now we are completely alone. Night fell in a multicoloured sky and the first lighthouse appeared on our right. It was Cap d'Antibes, which we recognised from the description in our pilot book. This is a volume published by the naval authorities which gives the characteristics by areas of every lighthouse in existence. Each is different according to the duration and frequency of the flash, its colour and grouping, and each is perfectly easy to identify. Then the night breeze sprang up from the land and carried us out to sea. It was a factor we had counted on. Those who were convinced that a dozen hours would find us thrown back on some beach again had been proven mistaken. We had scored a decisive point which, by its very nature, gave us encouragement from the first day. Perhaps, after all, we should have been grateful to the doubters, for the triumph would otherwise have seemed less sweet. The first night was upon us. I had drawn the first watch until one in the morning, and we were to reverse the order the next day. This arrangement soon proved indispensable, as the first watch from eight o'clock until one proved much more tiring than the second, in spite of its being shorter. During the day, we had taken up various positions, not all of them particularly safe, but we settled down for the night with the steersman sitting next to the rudder oar with his back resting on a May West and the compass between his legs, a deliberately uncomfortable position to prevent the risk of his dropping off to sleep. His feet touched the end of the tent which protected the sleeping partner. To make enough room for the man off watch to stretch out, we had ranged all the equipment along the left side of our bathtub, leaving a free space about two feet wide and nearly six feet long. The tent served as a blanket and the bags as a pillow. Jack dropped off to sleep, but I was not the only one left awake. At nightfall, the sea became a hive of activity. All its inhabitants apparently came to take a look at us, and the snorts of porpoises and the splashes of leaping fish round the boat peopled the night with strange phantoms, redoubtable at first, but soon familiar. The slap of the waves resolved itself into a regular murmur punctuated by occasional noises like the voice of a soloist against a muted orchestra. The regular movement of the sea ends by seeming as silent as the summit of a high mountain. Silence and noise are always relative, and silence can be as expressive as any sound. Does not Bach, the master of orchestration, make superb use of an interval of silence in his D minor toccata, an organ point floating on silence? The land breeze lasted the whole of the night and the dinghy slid slowly along. Before getting into the region of regular winds, we were relying largely on the alternation of sea and land breezes to make progress. The breeze blowing inland from the sea during the morning is followed after a pause by the breeze off the land in the evening, as if a fresh supply of air were being inhaled by the sea for the night. The ocean seemed to heave a great sigh every day, carrying our frail craft along on the torrent of its breath. The phenomenon has, of course, a perfectly rational and familiar explanation. During the morning, the land warms up more quickly than the sea, and the air above it rises. The colder sea air moves in to take its place, thereby forming a circuit of movement. But if the sea warms more slowly, 
it retains its heat longer, and during the night, the air movement is reversed. What we had to do was to take advantage of the night wind and lie up during the day. The first night showed how essential it was to keep watch. We met at least 10 ships. Low in the water, our riding light was practically invisible and certainly insufficient to ensure our safety. To meet this danger, with the means on board, we had the idea whenever a ship appeared likely to pass perilously close of shining our electric torch on the sail, thus illuminating a larger area, which must have been visible from quite a distance. I could not help feeling what a curious effect this disembodied light must cause, apparently floating between crest and trough, and I wondered if we did not revive for those who saw it some legend of the sea. We must have looked like a ghost ship. On the other hand, I may be exaggerating, and it may well be that we were not noticed at all. Finally, my watch ended, and I handed over to Jack, then slept myself like an innocent until he woke me up on the morning of 26th May. At first, I could not imagine where I was. It was a feeling I had not had since my childhood, the complete bewilderment of waking up in some strange hotel room, nor was I to have it again for many months until the morning after my arrival in the West Indies. As we expected, the wind had veered and was edging us towards the coast. For the first time, we let down our leeboards in an attempt to hold our course with the wind on the beam. This was the most the dinghy could manage, as it was incapable of sailing into the wind. The leeboards proved very effective, and although they reduced our speed to about one knot, we managed to keep a safe distance from the coast on a parallel course. We started to feel very hungry. Until then, the sensation had been worse than that of waiting for an overdue meal, but now it became strong, accompanied by a cramp in the stomach, a sensation of striction and torsion, as the medical works put it. Otherwise, I felt perfectly well, although Jack was rather more affected. He submitted passively to my proposal to make a first medical examination. His tongue was dry and coated, and there was a small rash on the back of his hands. His pulse was slow but still strong, and there were no signs of any serious dehydration. He was thirsty, but in spite of my advice made no attempt to drink anything. He should have been reassured by my example as I took my regular ration of seawater in accordance with the figures for safe absorption that I had worked out. We were both constipated, defying the gloomy prophecies of those who insisted we should include a chamber pot in our equipment. Perhaps I may explain this reference. The day we left, a so-called specialist in the matter of life-saving at sea had told my wife, you will never see your husband again. When she asked why, he replied, insufficient preparation. They are going to be six weeks at sea and do not even have a chamber pot with them. If anyone casts doubts on this astonishing conversation, I can produce witnesses. Thirst did not present a problem for me and was a bearable one for my companion. But for both of us, the pains of hunger became worse and worse. We each spoke with longing of the ham roll we had refused just before we left, and the thought of it seemed much more tangible and tempting than the most complicated and formal imaginary dinner. It became the one reason for our hunger, the one thing we might have eaten, and I was given a new insight into human desires and regrets. During the afternoon, 
when it was my turn to rest, I thought of all the delicious teas we had eaten at the hospitals in Boulogne and Amiens, and every now and again the insidious thought entered my head, why on earth did you leave that comfortable little life, and what on earth has induced you to get into this scrape? Several porpoises were gambling round us not far away. They seemed quite resigned to our presence, and we found their company comforting. What is more, if they could catch fish, there was nothing to prevent us from doing so as well. It was a clear, calm day, and I took a film of them. Unfortunately, all we had to eat was another spoonful of plankton. We could have caught more, but the net acted as a drogue, and near as we were still to the coast, we did not like to spoil chances, only just in our favour. During the afternoon, Jack surrendered to my insistence and began to drink seawater in small amounts. I had just explained that if he did not make up his mind to do so, his system would become so dehydrated that to drink it would be useless and even dangerous. To my great relief, he accepted my reasoning, and the next morning all the incipient signs of dehydration had disappeared. Even his thirst had gone. We laughed a good deal about his conversion to heresy, and our spirits became excellent. The nights that followed were to bring us a pleasant surprise. We found that very nearly a pint of fresh water condensed in the bottom of the boat. The atmosphere was very humid, and the quantity of the deposit by no means negligible. The dinghy had yet to ship a drop of seawater, and we managed to collect our windfall with a sponge. It was not enough for our total needs, but it was a great help. Above all, it was fresh water and tasted like nectar. Towards evening, the wind became exasperating. During the day, it had been completely unpredictable, both as to force and direction. Flat calm would be succeeded by a stiff breeze coming from all points of the compass, and the sea became quite rough. Nevertheless, the dinghy behaved very well, in spite of the Mediterranean's varying moods. I was rapidly becoming confirmed in my conviction that the dinghy was the ideal form of lifeboat. We had not seen the coast all day. We knew it was not far away, but it was hidden in a thick heat haze. Jack had been unable to take our position with the sextant, and we were not sure where we were. About six o'clock in the evening, the coast reappeared, but we could not make out whether we were off Estrel and Saint Raphael or still near Cap d'Antibes. Before we could make up our minds, the sun set for the second time in the voyage, and the lighthouses started to send out their reassuring messages. Ah, we were between Saint Raphael and Cap Camarat, still fairly well out to sea, but not yet quite safe. We were really very hungry, and faced the night with somewhat subdued optimism. For some reason or other, there seemed to be a light breeze off the sea. Was our expedition going to end by being driven ashore on Cap Camarat, as the specialists had predicted? There seemed little we could do about it, so we went to sleep. When Jack woke me up at one in the morning to begin my watch, I saw that we had already passed Cap Camarat to starboard. At least, we were not going to end up there, and if we could get past the island of Levant, the worst part of the French coast would be behind us. I shall not soon forget the 27th of May. The sun rose on a splendid day, and during the course of it, our chief anxiety was dispelled. In the middle of the afternoon, I was dozing with a fishing line tied round my ankle. I soon learnt that this was a stupid trick, as if a sufficiently large fish had taken the bait, 
it might have severed my foot. And suddenly, there was a violent jerk on the line. We had caught a splendid sea perch, or grouper, and we pulled it in with feverish haste. Rather, I imagine, as one draws the first bucket of water in an oasis after crossing the desert. What a piece of luck! The creature was carefully gutted and cut into neat slices. We had not forgotten our civilised manners. The head half was kept for the next day, and we shared the tail half. The pink flesh almost made me vomit, and Jack obviously felt the same, although I had already tried the effect in the laboratory. It was up to me to show an example. Of course, it is delicious, I said to myself, and swallowed the first mouthful. It was by no means so bad, and the taboo was broken. Forgetting our careful upbringing, we tore at the flesh with our teeth, each mouthful seeming more appetizing. The rest of the fish was placed on top of the tent to dry in the sun, after we had extracted the juice with my fruit press. At the next meal, it almost tasted cooked. Each civilization has placed a taboo on certain forms of food. Would you eat locusts or white grubs? No, but a Muslim cannot eat pork. Once in Britain, I even ate whale, but unfortunately, I knew it was whale and thought very little of it. Plenty of people will eat horse or cat if they are told it is beef or rabbit. It is all a question of habit, and I am sure our grandmothers would never have ventured to eat a steak tartar, but I ate so much that day that I was very nearly seasick. The wind continued warm but feeble, but our full stomachs had raised our spirits again. When a naval patrol boat hove in sight, presumably out of Toulon, we waited its arrival with calm and assurance. The captain grinned and offered us a few bottles of fresh beer, and although we declined it stoically, we learnt something of the trials of Tantalus. I do not know that this has been reported anywhere, but there would certainly have been a storm of comment if we had accepted it. The incident with the city Farouch, a ship that we met ten days later, was sufficient proof. After this luxurious but largely immobile day, a favourable wind blew up just as the sun was setting, and the lights of the land gradually disappeared into the night. Soon, the French coast was out of sight, and contrary to all predictions, we had not been thrown up upon it. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner you can follow the link in the podcast description and there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable so at five dollars a month your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on keeps the wheels going around but if you are interested in developing your skills further then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, Go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.